Okay, and let me get this out of the way. Okay, my name is Pat. I'm an alcoholic, member of the Park Street Group in Boston. It's a pleasure to be here. I think this is number five for me. Uh, I did one on the Roots. I did one on the Emanuel Group. I did one on Richmond Walker. No, I did one on uh, Roland Hazard, Sam Shoemaker, and now Richmond Walker. And this is the end game for me. Uh, but uh, I'd like you to uh, sit back. Most of you probably have the uh, a 20 copy of the 24 hour book. There was a time in Alcoholics Anonymous, where more individuals owned the 24-hour book than owned the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because first of all, it only cost a buck and a half. And secondly, it was small. You could stick it in your pocket and number. Two, people used to go ahead and buy, the whole group used to have them and use them there. So uh, as you, if you happen to have one and you settle in for this thing um, and you just open it up to any day and look at the thought for the day, uh, the top paragraph as we move along, you might if you're like me, I used to read it and I forget it before I went ahead and got my next cup of coffee. Uh, it, uh, it was supposed to go ahead and get me in the mood for some prayer and meditation, but uh, it just depended on how how effective I was on, on settling down. If I could shut off the TV and the radio and everything else like that. And, uh, and a lot of times it was more of a ritual than anything else. But during this COVID time, I've I've spent a little bit more time on it, and uh, I actually bought a large format copy of it, and uh, I've used it almost as a diary. I put in the uh, sobriety dates of my friends, uh, the passing of some of the other ones, my other friends, and uh, it, it's, a, it's a good thing for me, uh, and I do look at it every day. Uh, uh, I originally thought that the, uh, I was told by some of these creation myths that he took all of the uh, readings from this from someplace else, but as I get into it, I found out, no, he wrote most of it himself, at least on the thoughts for the day. This was, uh, this was a pretty smart guy, and uh, he did take stuff from God Calling, and I was a pagan, but um, most of his thoughts are original comp comp compositions, and uh, you can find that they're clustered in themes sometimes, uh, of five or more days in a row, regarding different aspects of recovery. Um, before we jump on, just remember that this guy grew up in the uh, in New England, and New England was a small community in the uh, in the early 1900s. Uh, a lot of the families were uh, interconnected. The population wasn't that big. A lot of them went to the same prep schools and uh, met their uh, cousins and, and friends and everything else like that. Then went on to some of the elite colleges like uh, Harvard, Yale, Brown, Princeton, Dartmouth, Williams, Vassar, Smith, and Wellesley. And uh, many of the families they knew each other. Uh, from vacations, uh, from marriages, from weddings, wakes, and funerals. Uh, and if you do have that little bit of familiarity, you tend to listen a little bit more to what people have to say. You just don't dismiss them out of hands because they, they have some, uh, some credibility in your, uh, in your family. Uh, one of these things is just a quick one. Bill Wilson listened to Ebby Thatcher. Why? Because they went to prep school together. They drank together, but I started off in prep school when they were probably 12 or 13 years old. And uh, people who have uh, are of the same tribe, sometimes on the sly, will go ahead and discuss some of the family problems. Uh, and they might be open to some new ideas or treatments that they had heard along the way. And this includes problems with alcohol. Um, you probably remember uh, in your early days when you went to a meeting and and uh, you were scared and uh, 
you looked across the room and you saw somebody from work, from church, from Boy Scouts, from something like, from high school and stuff like that. And most of the time, they just nodded at you and smiled. And it just made you feel okay that you're not the only one. And uh, maybe you talk to them in the parking lot later on because you can ask them what's going on and they're going to tell you. And you you'll feel more relaxed listening to them. Uh, there are a lot of coincidences that have taken place in the uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous, and we're going to touch on a few of them. Uh, this is a reading from uh, from the 28th of December, and this is by Richmond Walker. AA may be human in its organization, but it's divine in its purpose. The purpose is to point me towards God and the good life. My feet have been set upon the right path. I feel it in the depths of my being. I am going in the right direction. The future can be safely left to God. Whatever the future holds, it cannot be too much for me to bear. I have the divine power with me to carry me through everything that may happen. Am I pointed towards God and the good life? And that's from Richard, from Richmond Walker himself. Uh, it's, like I said before, most people, more AA members own the 24-hour book at one time than they own the book Alcoholics Anonymous. On a daily basis, I would say that probably more people read Richmond Walker than read Bill Wilson. Just think of it. Uh, the Walker books include For Drunks Only, which was written in 1945, 24 Hours a Day, which was written in 1948, started there, keep on editing it, and The Seven Points on Alcoholism, which is a sleeper from 1955. Those are the other two books. 24 Hours a Day, there are 10 million copies in print, and there's so many more online and unauthorized copies, and et cetera. Uh, in multiple language by multiple publishers and uh, probably close to 12 million really. Uh, his assembly of thoughts and meditations and prayers have set the table for a lot of AA since 1948. Uh, conceivably on a daily basis more people read him than anybody else. Hazelton went ahead in, in 2012 uh, put together a book which is very similar to the book um, the book that started it all which they published which is a coffee table book on the original um, manuscript, and uh, they published this in, in uh, 212. They had, uh, Damien McGrath was a, a priest who was assigned to, uh, to Hazelden, and he was the he, he was the conductor on putting this thing together. Uh, it, the book is a very, very good book for some of us history nuts, and it has a lot of documents and background notes uh, from, uh, and interviews with different people from Walker's friends and families. It's, it's sort of a treasury uh, and it doesn't have any conference-approved edits, which I really like. Uh, while not a definitive history in, of him and his contributions, it reveals more of the true threads necessary to get into the fabric of Alcoholics Anonymous from the first half. Remember, he, this is this he focused. My focus here today is really between 1938 and, and 1965. And tracing his path has made me more aware of the coincidences that have taken place. In, the, in AA's development, and, and for me, particularly as I walk around the streets of Boston like I did today, uh, is Richmond Walker. He was born in Boston in 1892. He's the second son of six children of Joseph and Eleanor Richmond Walker. Uh, his maternal grandfather was in the textile business with ties to the Roland Hazard family. He was in Rhode Island, and there's actually a town in Rhode Island called Richmond, which is right down by them. Uh, his grandfather his, was, uh, was J.H. Walker. He was made a fortune making boots during the Civil War. He was in the right place at the right time. 
Um, he then went on and, and became a elected to Congress from Worcester, Massachusetts, and he was one of those characters. He was known as the Gray Eagle of Lake Quinsigamond. Uh, the father, Joseph Walker, was a businessman and also uh, became Speaker of the House of Representatives in, in Massachusetts. Um, he, he was supposed to be a really good guy. He was uh, well-respected. He was a friend of Teddy Roosevelt's. Uh, he managed the family's investments from their home, uh, was active in politics. I believe he ran for uh, governor once and didn't make it, possibly ran for senator also. Uh, but he was a very respected man, which here in Massachusetts is... Uh, you don't hear that often about politicians. Um, that was, uh, here is some of the property that they managed, the Walker Building, which is owned now by Emerson College. It's directly across from the State House. And the, uh, the grandfather had purchased property throughout uh, the Northeast, including Chicago, et cetera, wherever he was making, uh, he was out there making his, uh, his boots. This was their family home in Brookline, which is just uh, outside of Boston. It was a part of Boston that they tried to annex, and, and Brookline said, no, we want no part of you. It's a very nice suburb, one of the nicest uh, communities in Massachusetts. Growing up, there was a rivalry between Richmond and his older brother, Joe, so the family tried to neutralize this by sending him off to separate schools and colleges. Joe Walker uh, went, on to, went to prep school in Boston, then went on to Yale, while well, Richmond went on to St. George's in Newport, Rhode Island, and then on to Williams College. And his St. George's schoolmates included Sam Shoemaker, Roland Hazard's younger brother Thomas, and Prescott Bush, the uh, father and great-grandfather of uh, two presidents of the United States. And he, I believe, was a senator for quite some time. Uh, as a noted student athlete, Richmond won the Golden Medal gold medal for Greek and Latin. He was also the captain of the St. George's football team. And uh, he, he was no slouch. He was really quite a character. He went on to Williams College, which is in western Massachusetts, and he continued to be a campus leader. He, uh, out there, he was the class president, captain of the football team, and a Phi Beta Kappa graduate. Uh, he got out of college in, in three and a half years. Phi Beta Kappa is 10% of the, only 10% of the colleges and universities in the United States have a Phi Beta Kappa chapter, and less than 10% of the students who qualify are elected to Phi Beta Kappa. So it's a very elite uh, situation, probably less than 1% to 2% of the total college population at the time. And, uh, and he was a star. Not only that, he got out of school early, and he took his time, and he went to, uh, he went to Europe for a cruise for a while. Uh, he had very early, very few early experiences with alcohol. Uh, he reported that as a freshman at a uh, at a at a fraternity event, uh, he drank and he passed out. And uh, that was they used to dress formally, and his his classmates all autographed his starred shirt. Later on, he had uh, as captain of the football team, he uh, they beat Amherst, which is their cross town rival, and uh, evidently he put on quite a show afterwards in downtown. Uh, Northampton or someplace like that, and uh, it, it drew some uh, negative comments from the from the Williams president. Uh, when they got out of uh, college, he was around in the uh, uh, he served in the army uh, stateside as an officer. But once again, Brother Joe comes through. Brother Joe becomes a Marine Corps pilot in France, so he was pretty elite. Um, they moved to us to a staffed, elegant townhouse on Boston 
Beacon Hill in 1920, and they uh, formed a company called Walker Top Company, which brought in the best quality wool fibers, the longest fibers, to New England's textile industries, which were really quite big at the time. Um, during the 20s, Richmond evolved into a daily thing that he initially resisted. Joe himself was not really a drinker, but Rich made up for both of them. In 1922, Richmond uh, married Agnes, and on the quiet, to be honest with you. Uh, but the, the pair of them were uh, great Gadsby-style partner parties. This was the Roaring Twenties, and they were part of it. He used to go to a place down there, which, which just closed up recently, a place called Lockovers. And this was uh, originally a speakeasy, and this is the way it looked. I actually took Father Martin here for lunch one day, and um, it's... Uh, You've never seen, he, of course, he's gone now, but similar to, uh, to that Father Ed Dowling, um, I don't think that Father Martin ever missed a meal. He loved it in that place, and uh, we took him there after a meeting. Uh, his, uh, Richmond's drinking progressed from cocktails after work to drinks at lunch and then into the late evening and then to the morning drink, and uh, because it was prohibition and drinking was really full tilt, uh, it didn't stand out to him. The Walker Top Company was very successful, so his brother Joe built them both houses in Chestnut Hill section of Boston, which is out near Brookline. It still is a, is a, is a very, very nice area. Uh, on a weekend with the guys in the mid-1920s, Richmond bought a vacation home in Seconset on, on Nantucket Island, which is about 30 miles off the coast, but still a very, very wealthy enclave. Uh -huh. and, uh, it seemed like a good idea at the time, I'm sure. Uh, this is some pictures of what it is. They had a, a fancy club out there. Uh, if there's a picture on the lower right-hand corner. They have lost a lot of land because of the erosion out there. The other thing was that Nantucket was a, uh, a regular stop for the bootleggers coming up from the Caribbean and down from Canada for unloading their boots, so they were never ready. It was a strategically placed joint. He also used to travel, he and Agnes, would get down through the Caribbean on cruises uh, to the Canal Zone, Cuba, the West Indies, with their tribe. Once again, it was the Roaring Twenties. And he, in, in his writings, he talked about how romantic a Caribbean nightclub would look in the evening, but it was a wreck in the morning. And uh, some of us who have lived in those areas, I, I, I had trouble in the, in the Virgin Islands, and I wasn't even drinking. Uh, uh, towards the end, 1929, the stock market crashed. and. Uh, it had a, a ripple effect that affected everybody, and uh, Richmond and his, and his wife sold their house in Chestnut Hill and moved to the town of Cohasset, which is about 20 miles south of Boston. Um, the yellow dot is where their house was, right on the harbor, and the red dot way on the, on the right-hand side is uh, where the train station was, so he could walk to the train station from where he was. Uh, that's a, and The yellow is a picture of his house. I think I took that uh, last fall. In, in nicer weather, and there it is again. It's a beautiful place, and it still is a nice place today. Despite their new surroundings and a growing family, Richmond's drinking increased, more so following the unexpected death of their young daughter, Hilda, in 1935, from meningitis contracted at a summer sailing camp while Rich and Agnes were, were on uh, Nantucket. Uh, this is the walker. I took this picture of the I think it was the uh, first day of March of this year. Uh, same house. They, they had sold it a long time ago, but it's still there. It, it's now, it, it, I think the last time it sold, it went for a, 
a million five. It's right across the street from the harbor. It's in a fairly nice neighborhood. And like I said, the train station was only a short walk away from his home, and the Red Line Inn, which I had been known to frequent in my uh, drinking days, uh, it was open early to late, and it was just nearby. And his, his drinking became too much and too often, and uh, leading to a pair of drunk driving arrests. So he was a pedestrian, uh, and he was hospitalized twice. And while he was in the hospital in Cohasset, they had little neighborhood hospitals at the time uh, with the DTs. In 1937, Agnes's lawyer served Richmond with divorce papers. So he was out of the house, and he moved to Boston. This is Back Bay in Boston. Uh, and way on the right in the red was the area that Richmond Walker took a, a room in. Uh, down a little bit further, you see a green dot. That's where I live right now. Uh, the yellow circle was the Emanuel Church. And uh, the diamond is, uh, was where uh, Reverend Worcester and Courtney Baylor used to have a, uh, have a counseling business. In the foreground was is the public gardens, the city of Boston. So he was he was on his own in town. And Boston's a very pedestrian town. I'm sure he got into trouble pretty quickly. Um, but he wasn't far from recovery because the Emanuel Church had thousands of people sober by then. The Emanuel Movement and the Jacoby Club were helping men get sober since 1910. And uh, Baylor and Worcester later on in 1930 opened up the uh, Craigie Foundation, which is on Marlboro Street. Uh, and his life was crashing pretty fast, and, uh, but Richmond was aware that there was help in Boston in 1938. Uh, he had more, uh, he was encouraged to join the Oxford group in Boston. I, you know, it was not an unknown, wasn't a secret society. It was a first century Christian fellowship um, involving change through soul surgery, surrender, sharing, witnessing, and service. It was very popular. And many of their members had problems with alcohol, and he joined them in 1938 and became sober. Uh, when he joined, he had quality contacts more than most people had at the time, and he knew members in Boston and New York. Uh, though it was an abstinence movement, a number of the Oxford groupers had found sobriety. Sam Shoemaker, his classmate, at, uh, a schoolmate at, at St. George's, Sam was a couple of years ahead of him, uh, behind him, excuse me. Um, Sam was a big leader of the Oxford group, and uh, Roland Hazard, uh, whose brother Tom was a, was his schoolmate, and in business, uh, because of the textiles, etc., the Walker brothers would have run into Roland Hazard, uh, and, and Richmond was very very easy to get to New York back in those days. There were other members in there in the Oxford group, and staying sober with them into 18, 1942, he had a profile they liked. He was a preppy. He was uh, he fit the this this the. Uh, and he was a great Gatsby-type character, and uh, his sin, and that's what they called it, was alcoholism. So he joined with Sam Shoemaker, Philip Marshall Brown in the right-hand corner, Victor Kitchen, Zebra um, Graves, Chef Cornell, and Roland Hazard. At these house parties that they had were more like retreats. Uh, they were not held in churches. They were held at resorts and country clubs, and they were spiritual in nature. And uh, but they were quite popular at the time for doing the right thing, and they, they were not an abstinence thing. It was, uh, there was a lot of stuff going on there. Um, this is a picture of one of the, uh, the house parties that the, uh, they had. They had up to 600 people would gather together for a week to 10 days. These were just not an overnight situation. They'd have 
small groups and seminars and people would talk and they'd have Bible studies and socialize. Um, it, was, it, was a, uh, it was a very popular movement at the time. Um, Walker was sober in, in the Oxford group for two years from 1939 to 1942. And the, the members were, were of his tribe, and he, and he should have fit in. But the indications are, though, even though he was sober, he was unsettled during this time. Um, like I said, the parties in the, on Cape Cod, the Berkshires, Maine, New Hampshire, and Rhode Island, uh, he would have renewed and kept the contacts with, with uh, Sam Shoemaker again and Roland Hazard. And, and, uh, you know, I have yet to come across any accounts of the Oxford group in Boston, and that's surprising to me. But uh, he was also very silent in his notes and in his, in his uh, memorandum about his Oxford group adventure. The Walker family uh, was a big family. Uh, like I said, there were six of them. And uh, this is a gathering in uh, either the summer, uh, it must have been in the summer of uh, 1941, the spring or the summer, because uh, he, his father passed away in the fall. And uh, going from right to left, the green arrow is the old man, uh, the, uh, the nice guy. The red is uh, Richmond. The gold is Agnes. And the yellow is uh, his brother Joe. And over Joe's uh, left shoulder is his latest wife. Uh, I thought it was one of her children until I came across one of his, uh, his, his uh, comments that uh, that was probably his his, that was his sin, I guess, I don't know. He, uh, but he liked to marry, and he liked to marry young. Um, they had gotten together <coughs> at that, uh, at the funeral of the father. And uh, Richmond was sober a couple of years at the time. And uh, so Agnes, you know, she had these kids, and uh, so they, they decided to uh, <coughs> again. And uh, he moved back to Cohasset. But uh, while he was there, he had resumed snake drinking, and he went on a spring bender in March, April. And uh, he got caught, and he was contrite. He told his wife that he, he wouldn't drink anymore, and he would, Oxford Group wasn't working, so he'd give this newfangled thing, Alcoholics Anonymous, to try. Now, Alcoholics Anonymous had only started in Boston in 1941. But he had already been urged to seek AA by one of his Oxford Group friends in Boston, a guy named Evan Dick. So at that time, in 1942, the Oxford was knew that Alcoholics Anonymous worked for alcoholics that was working in Akron and New York, and they knew it was open in Boston. And they said, you've got a bigger problem than we can handle. Why don't you go see them? Uh, as he was still sneak drinking, his friends thought that he was sober, and so they asked him to go ahead and help one of their friends who was staying at the Essex Hotel which is on the right here, uh, next to South Station. And uh, as he was, his friends thought that he was sober, but uh, he went to see the friend and they both got drunk and they realized they were hopeless. So they called Alcoholics Anonymous for help. It was on Saturday, May 23rd, 1942. That's a picture of South Station and the Hotel Essex uh, earlier this week. And the Boston AA group sent over one of their people, a guy named Jack Priest. Jack went to the Essex Hotel and talked with the two drunks. And he invited Richmond to come to an AA meeting, but not that day. 
He said, why don't you come and see me next Wednesday at 306 Newbury Street. He knew that you don't bring a wet one to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. The job of Alcoholics Anonymous is help you stay stuff when not a drying out operation. It may be misconstrued these days, but in the beginning, we had to be sober first. That went back, the Emanuel group would not talk to you if you showed up at their church drunk. They'd say, come back sober, show us that you want to stay sober. Um, so Richmond's first AA meeting was on May 27th, 1942. Uh, May 23rd, 1942 was his, was his last drink, which means that that Saturday afternoon after Jack Priest talked to him, that's when he put down the drink. Now, as I prepared this, I was this presentation. One of my sponsees visited Boston. He lives in Florida or Newport, retired. And uh, we went to a meeting and, and we're having coffee afterwards. And I was relating how I was putting this thing together and some of the stuff I had come into about Richmond Walker's life. And I knew that Dick had a, an uncle that lived in Cohasset where Richmond lived. And um, so I, 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 and he knew the whole, the Essex, we used to drink there together years ago. And um, it was a place we both knew well. And I told him of, of Walker's phone call to, um, to AA and uh, that they had sent over a guy to help him. And the guy's name was Jack Priest. And as I did that, Dick's jaw dropped because my friend had known Jack Priest he had met him in 1965. Uh, my friend Dick had been a, uh, he, like, I, I'm, I was a class of 66. He was a little behind me. And uh, the Vietnam War was, was raging. So it wasn't a good time to get into trouble in school and get thrown out. Uh, but Dick did. And he was a furloughed college student um, because of his drinking. And he was waiting his time to, to go into, uh, go down to Fort Dix. And he was working at his father's law office, his family law office. And his father had him go in and uh, brought a guy into the office, and he said, I'd like you to talk to this guy. And prior, he said, his, his father explained to him that this guy was a very smart guy, very talented guy, a law school graduate. But he had lost it all in the 40s due to his alcoholism. And he also lost his law license forever. Uh, and his name was Jack Priest, of all places. And he joined AA in 1941, and he was sober 25 years at that time and Dick's father hoped that Jack could be an early warning system to his son my friend and Jack was a uh, worked for the in, for the family law firm as a fixer he would get your permits he would get people, your brother out of trouble he knew the ins and outs of the courts and everything else in city hall in Boston and he worked for the law firm well into his 1970s never drank again but his 1965 warning to my friend didn't take until my friend came in in 2010 and he planted, but he planted the seed. Jack Priest responded to the Essex Hotel and invited Richmond Walker to his first AA meeting at 306 Newbury Street in Boston, but not that Saturday, the following Wednesday, as I said. And Richmond and his friends were too drunk. Jack wanted them dry when they came to the meeting. In the spring of 1944, this is just that Jack was not a one-shot guy. Jack and another guy named Jack Gee 12-step, a Boston Braves pitcher named Nate Andrews. And Andrews became a partner of Roley Helmsley and attended AA meetings in Boston together during the baseball seasons in the 1940s. When Richmond went to that meeting, he said he was he was basically God-struck. And he, he liked the people. There were only 15 people there. 
but the quote from him is journey through life as a community affair and someone has to say i'll be with you and that's what jack priest and the people from alcoholics anonymous offered to him richmond loved aa this is a copy of his first big book and it has in it his uh, date of his sobriety may 23rd 1942 his address at 23 border street and then they had a house down in florida on peninsula drive in daytona beach and one of his resolutions that he wrote on the side of that was to make a book for morning quiet times short passages for each day use different phrases of aa and call it 24 hours a day this was written around 1942 1943. this guy was on fire uh, his brother said that he was vibrant uh, and it, and it reborned his, his intellect and his enthusiasm. Uh, Richmond soon became a, an AA speaker of, of some renown. In 1930, 43, he became a co-founder of today's South Shore Group in Quincy, which is closer to his home in Cohasset. And as AA and Richmond both grew, he became involved with New England's first central office at 30th Huntington Avenue, and with the early growth of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, under his uh, stewardship in that first year or two, the CEO, uh, CSO chair, he hired a Helen Brown, which I'll talk about her later. And uh, Helen and, and, and Richmond must have had some personality conflicts, uh, which we'll get to later. But this is what happened in Boston. 1946, they published a meaningless book from 30, they were at 30, 30 Huntington Avenue. There were only 15 meetings. And that meaningless book covered all of New England, except for Connecticut. In 1949, there were 140-something meetings, or 120, I guess it is. And uh, that's an 800% increase in New England in three years. And Richmond and Helen Brown were the ones that would drive in the bus, because that was the only office at the time. With only a couple of years under his belt, uh, like I said, he was popular from the start. He was very smart. He was very articulate. And uh, a quote from uh, an observer was a very spiritual and humble man. And he, he, was, he was the opposite of his Gatsby playboy. He had a lot of humility at some parts of his life. And he was a scholar and a born leader before his alcoholism. And his new sober manner instilled confidence. Uh, the guy said that from the start, I believed everything he said. AA speakers at the time, remember we didn't have speaker meetings back then, maybe once a week, maybe once a month, but speakers were often asked to speak on topics or themes rather than just tell their story or commiserate. And Richmond often spoke on getting sober, staying sober, fellowship, the steps, and our kit of spiritual tools. He devoured the book. He gathered his notes into a 50-page booklet, and he and his, uh, what called for drunks only, uh, which he and the people in his group went ahead and uh, and published. Uh, he had the brains, he had the education, and he was right into high gear. Uh, he reconnected again with Shoemaker in New York, and he and in the later Oxford days had regular contact with Bill Wilson in New York. And an early copy of For Drunks Only was inscribed for Bill Wilson with gratitude from Rich Walker. He offered the book to Alcoholics Anonymous, but they declined to take it over. The South Shore Group printed 8,000 copies. In 1947, Bill Wilson and his wife Lois visited Nantucket and stayed with the Walkers, Walkers at this concert home. 
this was the time of Bill's, uh, one of Bill Wilson's uh, spook communicating with ghosts of dead people, whalers and naval casualties and sailors, which uh, show up every once in a while. Uh, back in there, you know, he did that book. He was only sober a few years when he wrote that book. I have it right here. It is a great book. It is a great part to come by nowadays. It's only 70-something pages, but it was just a compilation of his talks. Uh, he had that other idea, was to go ahead and to, uh, to make a book for morning quiet time, short passages for each day. And remember, you know, Richmond was a smart guy. And, and anybody, and he had, had been in the Oxford group, but any casual reviewer of religion is aware of the commonality of quiet time. And the concept of prayer and meditation and seeking guidance isn't new. It was formalized by Christ, the Jesuit, Seventh-day Adventist, and evangelists, such as Johnny Mott, Reverend H.P. Wright, and the morning watch was, in, was an ancient practice. Um, Ann Ripley Smith, Dr. Bob's wife, she was a Bible Christian, and she used to set the table from their morning quiet time in her home by reading selected scriptures to others and then quietly waiting for God's guidances to emerge and be discussed. She was doing that before they formed Alcoholics Anonymous. That was a normal practice of the people in, in uh, the Oxford group. Uh, many of the people in the Akron area and in the Oxford group used to set the table with the upper room, which is a little magazine. I have a copy over here. Uh, Your Place to Meet God. It's a monthly booklet uh, with daily Bible readings uh, and inspirational stories and a thought for the day and still published today. I think they publish it every two months now. Um, I believe that what happened was that Richmond Walker realized that his the people he was meeting in AA uh, lacked the talent to search for inspiration in the scriptures. They weren't going to do it. Uh, I'm Roman Catholic, at least I was brought up that way. We didn't have much Bible tradition in our, in our uh, at least in, in my family, at 612 Country Way, and my mother had a black belt in Catholicism, but we still didn't do that. Uh, you went to church, and that was pretty much it, but I don't know if many people doing, the, uh, doing uh, prayer and meditation in the morning uh, but he envisioned that we needed that for alcoholics in his early days. He recognized the benefit for directed meditation upon awakening for recovering alcoholics, and he signed himself that challenge. He gathered passages from scriptures, as well as appropriate quotes and prayers from spiritual writings, Oxford group books, Alcoholics Anonymous, and his own book, For Drunks Only, and some created phrases he heard from AA speakers at meetings put together this book. Well, on slips of paper, he cut and pasted thousands of quotes for thoughts for the day, daily meditation, and prayer for the day. Then he worked slowly and deliberately to match the appropriate combinations for each day, 365 days, offering clustering the themes and thoughts and sequences. And met a guy when I first got sober back in the, in the early 80s, his name was Walter Schreider from Norwood, Massachusetts. He was sober 40-something years at the time. And he was a friend of, of Walker's, both in Massachusetts and in Florida. And he said that they used to sit around a card table and pass around slips of paper, like on three-by-five slips, matching clips until they had the combination for the best daily message. Uh, and they made many ads and, and deletions. You can see the tape marks on here. He was not, until it went to the printers, 
He was like that that book, the book that started it all. He was revising right until it went, till the ink went on the page. Now, on the 24 hours a day, the composed by Walker, he, the thought for the day was composed by him from his own readings and understanding, and from his book Drunks Only. And for years, I gave little thought to this section, and then I started to have to sense the depth and the weight of his composition. And I find very, very much value in, in a spiritual living and some food for each day. The daily meditation, he plucked from A.J. Russell's God column, who edited the daily guidances, which he had gone ahead and edited and received from two Oxford group women in England, I believe, uh, who were spiritual partners who shared daily quiet times for years and jotted down the guidances that they believed they had received directly from God. And the prayer for the day was grabbed by Walker from scriptures, sermons, or liturgy that he felt was appropriate for the day. Here's just an example of uh, one of his uh, February 14th, and he plucked from everybody. Courtney Baylor and the Emanuel movement used to use the analogy of, 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 of the railroad train and the tracks. And they said you had to keep your mind on the right track, because once you're on the wrong track, every stop is the wrong stop. So you have to go ahead and just be focused. You have to pay attention. The first drink started it off, and it kept on going on the single track until it got to the end of the line, drunkenness. We alcoholics knew that this was the inevitable result when we took the first drink. We couldn't keep away from liquor. Our willpower was gone. It became helpless and hopeless before the power of alcohol. It is not the second drink or the tenth drink that does the damage. It is the first drink. Will I ever take the first drink again? And then down in the bottom there, I pray that I make faithfully keep a quiet time apart with God, I pray that I may grow spiritually each day. Now, this is the sources that I, I, I have gone through before, but God calling, I was a pagan, Alcoholics Anonymous, for drunks only, and from the Bible. The first collection was printed by Walker and his friends in, in Daytona. Uh, they, they did it, it was a home-style thing. They used to borrow a mimeograph machine from the Daytona Courthouse print shop. I believe, I'm not sure though, that Wesley Parrish was down there and I believe he was part of that group and he may have been a building inspector for, for uh, the city of Daytona at the time. Uh, by 1953, they had sold over 30,000 copies at a buck and a half a piece. They were doing it by mail and any income, extra income was given to the local groups and to AA's New York office. By 1953, the requests were growing to 600 a month. And they couldn't do it anymore. Um, it was a work in progress. Uh, they kept on revising it, but it became too much for their operation. So we offered the 24-hour book gratis to New York City. Now remember, Bill had already turned them down on the drunks only book. Uh, the correspondence between Richmond Walker and AA reflected some tension. In the 1954 letters from GSO secretary, Helen B., remember that name, confirmed AA's decision not to accept the offer for any reason. Here's a picture of Helen B. with Bill Dotson. Now, it must have been before 1954 or before because Bill Dotson died in 1954. Uh, Helen had tried AA in 1944, but ended up in the nut house in 1945. He moved to Boston in again in 1946, and she was sober, and she was hired to run New England's first central office at 30 Huntington Avenue uh, during a very flying blind period 
there were virtually no central offices, regional offices at the time. Everybody was making it up as they went along. She worked seven days a week, was on call 24-7. She managed it, including the service committees, meeting lists, helplines, bookstore, all volunteers except for her. And she had to deal with all of the personalities, the delegates, the groups of finance. She must have been going crazy. And it was a political minefield during this period when AA was growing by 800%, as I had shown you, just locally. Uh, on overload from the start, she had nobody to talk to in Boston. So she was sharing her problems with AA's New York office, which would have been Bobby Berger and Bill Wilson at the time. Uh, and when Bobby crashed and burned in the late 1940s, Bill Wilson asked Helen to come to GSO in New York. And in 1949, she became his skilled right hand. She was the one that recommended Nell Wing to be Bill Wilson's secretary. And uh, I confirmed that today, taking a look at uh, Nell Wing's book. And she says that, that, that it was, it was it was Helen who recommended her. Uh, Nell wrote a book, Happy to Have Been There, I believe it is. And, uh, and But Helen worked with Bill on putting together the traditions and managing the delegates and organizing the, the first AA conferences. Uh, in 1954, when Walker offered the book, uh, it fell to Helen Lynn to write the letters. I don't know if any, I'm telling you, Without knowing a backstory, those were some pretty, not harsh letters, but they were certainly without any emotion or any, any friendliness. Um, Helen's uh, story was, was called Promoter to Chronic, and it was in the uh, second edition of the uh, big book. And in 1955, I think it is, she got married and she uh, moved to Texas. In the meantime, though, Richmond had already received a letter from Patrick Butler at Hazleton saying that uh, he, he was interested in taking over the 24-hour book. And Walker replied in this letter here that if AA didn't accept his offer, Hazleton could have it free, nothing. In May of 1924, 24 hours became a Hazleton book, and its bestseller ever with well over 10 million copies sold. Walker had been gathering notes, prayers, and inspirational passages for his 24-hour book from his first days in AA. But sober only five years, and with the encouragement and assistance of AA friends, he self-published a 24-hour book in 1948, which sold at a cost of about 50. AA's GSO rejected the 24-hour book in 1954. It took AA 36 years to produce daily reflections. Richmond Walker did it while he was getting sober in less than four. And I believe he probably still, I think the 24-hour book outsells the daily reflections. The decision was very vague, somewhat con contradictory, and it was certainly political. Richmond was going ahead, and when people would order a book, he said, I'm really too busy. Why don't you write Central Service or General Service in New York and tell them they should, they should publish the book? So he was stepping on toes. Uh, and even the, the Florida district delegate was opposed to it. But the funny thing was, Bill Wilson remained very quiet on this whole thing. And I'm still intrigued by the interaction between Helen Brown and Richmond Walker. He was disappointed, but it didn't stop him. And here are some of the other books. They didn't take the Little Red Book. They didn't take the 24-hour book. They did the 12 and 12 in the Daily Reflections. Uh, 
those of you who have been around AA, where's the meat and potatoes in this thing? Anybody that's read the 24-hour book or read the Little Red Book, there's a big difference between style versus substance, and those two books have substance. Uh, Richmond didn't wait. He wrote another book in 1955, The Seven Points of Alcoholics Anonymous, his own interpretation of the 12 steps. He was one of the smartest guys in the AA room. He grew his place in his family, church, and community. He knew service was the key. He was doing 12-step calls right up to the end game, and he stayed in the middle of the pack. Uh, seven Points first appeared as Thoughts for the Day in his 24-hour-a-day uh, book. The content is nothing new or controversial. It is just factual, and it comes off a little bit easier to read. These are his views of importance on certain points. Well-chosen words for uh, serious AA members. The 20, this seven points book is like going to a really good small speaker discussion meeting and listen to some fellow AA travelers really share their experience. He boiled it down to this admission, fellowship, surrender, inventory, restitution, live, live today and service. It's very much like Clarence uh, Snyder, who used to say admission, submission, restitution and reconstruction. Um, Richmond spoke throughout New England. Unfortunately, there aren't too many tapes of his, I believe only one or two, uh, but people knew him very, uh, that knew him said he was fantastic, plus he did a good job with this. I'm blessed to have grown up in the area nearby. I know a number of people that knew him personally. Uh, and, and Richmond had left his fingerprints all over Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, the Walkers, like I said, had a home in Florida and they split their time between Mass and Florida. Later on, as the kids got older, uh, they sold the house in Cohasset after the kids were out of school, and uh, they used to come up and rent a house for the summer. But uh, he put the finishing touches on at the 24-hour book. Dr. Bob and Ann Smith used to be in the Delray, Daytona area a lot, and uh, I imagine their paths crossed. He was the energizer bunny at the time. He had a very active schedule, speaking commitments, 12-step calls, writing and service to AA. Um, I knew a guy uh, I met back a long time ago at Tesla last October named Dick Gifford Dean, and uh, I talked recently with his former wife, Dottie, and they were they were contemporaries, and Gift uh, grew up with them. I first knew him as a sober dad. Dottie was friends with one of Richmond's daughters and with neighbors, and as young alcoholics in trouble with alcohol in the 60s, Gift and Dottie went ahead and found uh, Richmond Walker and started to become part of the Cohasset and Sidgwood AA community. Uh, like I said, Gifford died last October. Dottie is, I believe, 59 years sober and in her early 90s. Uh, and one of the quotes from, from Gift uh, was that he does not teach us, he invites us to accompany him on his own spiritual journey as a soulmate and a trusted friend. This is what I see, hear, feel, and touch when I pray and meditate. He only asks, what did you learn? How do you plan on the basis of the new insight? to start living and acting a little bit differently today. Walker died in 1965 and is buried next to his daughter, Hilda. Ironically, Dottie told me that a, a year or so after he was dead, the doorbell rang. She came to the front door and there was Agnes with a box of books, including the drafts for the 24-hour book, Bill Wills, um, Richmond Walker's uh, big book, which I showed you a copy of, and a whole bunch of uh, manuscripts and drafts. Uh, most of them are now in the Hazelton collection. Uh, he was buried next to his, his, his uh, daughter that died, like I said, in 1935, and um, back into Cohasset. 
One of the things I found out, and, and it really gave me some insight, I didn't find it out till later on. I learned it from his brother George's uh, comments, that after he left Williams College, Richmond Walker attended Union Theological Seminary in New York City. He left before completing his first years. He also was engaged to somebody down there and he broke that. This was unknown until related by his brother George in 1935. It gave me some insight into, uh, into what he might have been like. He might have been conflicted when he got out of college. He might have had that yin and yang thing going. He was unsettled. And he, he, he was seeking a stronger connection to God. Remember, St. George was a very strong Episcopal school at the time. Uh, but he had started to drink, and it was like a race on which was going to win, the drinking or his, uh, his quest for spirituality. Well, drinking ran for a while. Uh, but uh, certainly alcoholism was his sin and the barrier between him and his higher power. And uh, when he joined Alcoholics Anonymous, he reestablished that convention. So that's Richmond Walker. He was one of the first guys that transitioned from the Oxford group directly into Alcoholics Anonymous. You don't see too many of them. Roland Hazard certainly didn't. Many of those other guys, Chef uh, Cornell wasn't even an alcoholic. Um, Seabrook Graves was in and out until he died in 1955. But Richmond was the real thing and uh, would have been a great guy to know. So that's the end of my game. Thank you.